Hello, everybody. Hi, welcome to the first episode of Talking in the Rain. I am your host, Saira Unju, and today in the background of my intro, I have from the ballet Sylvia, Act 3, Divertissement Andante. And today, my guest is Claire Love Wilson, a queer white Scottish settler artist living on the ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, colonially known as Vancouver. They work as a theater maker, actor, playwright, musician, and singer-songwriter. We talked about the current production they're in called The Café, which you can catch at Kafka's Coffee until October 22nd. And you can get your tickets at itsazoo.org if you would like to watch it. We also get into self-producing works for festivals, how that's different from working with a company. We talk a little about what Claire describes as being an emotional athlete. We get into Claire's own experimental musical called Morag, You're a Longtime Deed. Deed being D-E-I-D, meaning it's a Scott word for dead. <laughs> I, I had a really lovely time chatting with Claire and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Hello, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. So we'll be talking about the cafe from It's a Zoo Productions and Aphotic Theater. That's happening. Well, it's actually starting today when we're recording October 11th to 22nd. And we'll also be getting into both a little your experience as an actor, your projects. I read some very interesting things and I'm excited to talk about them. So let's start with the cafe. Would you mind kind of telling us what it is and how you got involved with this project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yes, the cafe is, it's the conceptual baby of one of the directors of the show, Faye Nass, um, who is the artistic director of the Frank Theatre and Aphotic Theatre. And I know that Faye kind of came up with this concept um, quite a long time ago. And Faye was interested in the just like the the social and political space that a cafe is, and not just in Vancouver, but all around the world, um, and how you can kind of go to cafes in so many different places and observe people having our sort of tagline of the show is you can observe and actually often hear people having like private conversations in public. And, uh, you know, if you're a keen listener in a cafe or, or you stay for a while, you'll often hear a range of of conversations, you know, Um, and depending on where you are in the world, political conversations, intimate conversations, you know, people on dates, maybe people ending a relationship. Uh, There's, there's so many sort of a range of possibilities. So Faye brought this concept to the folks at It's a Zoo, It's a Zoo Productions. They're known for doing like uh, site-specific theater. So theater that doesn't necessarily happen in a traditional, you sit down and watch the stage kind of space. And It's a Zoo is really excited about the possibility of creating this, this uh, basically creating a quite like naturalistic cafe, but through the lens of theater. Um, so they brought on, um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the, of the number, several playwrights, um, local Vancouver-based playwrights to write scenes that they could realistically envision playing out in a cafe. Cafe, uh, and they really wanted to get like a diverse range of stories. So they hired a diverse range of playwrights, racially, culturally, different ages, 
Um, and you really see that reflected in the stories. There's many, uh, multiple sort of identities that characters have. There's multiple languages that are being spoken. And yeah, so it's, I believe it's nine playwrights, actually. Nine playwrights, 14 actors. Um, <laughs> and... And we're all kind of, yeah. And so the, the actual show is the audience is invited into an actual cafe. It's Kafka's Cafe. And you're invited in as a voyeur. Um, so the actors are uh, playing out scenes at different parts of the cafe. Uh, and they're short scenes that loop. So they, they happen multiple times in different locations and you get to move around and hear snippets of different conversations. And the idea is that through the, the whole performance, you're going to kind of get a sense of what everybody's actually talking about, but not in a linear way. In a similar way that if you were actually sitting in a cafe for two hours, um, that's the show. Such an interesting concept. It is very different from anything I've seen personally in Vancouver in the past five years. Yeah. And I love that you know, art in general, but also theater can be so flexible. You can, you know, bend it in different ways. And the show was supposed to happen earlier this year, but it got canceled because of COVID. Were you supposed to be part of it also back then? Or did you get involved with it recently? Yeah, so I've been involved with it since um, since they started workshopping it, which was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, so we did actually do a workshop. Uh, it was that first summer or like late summer, early fall of 20. 2020, we, we came together and did a like super masked social distanced workshop where we tried some of the scenes out um, in a cafe and it worked and it was interesting. And, um, and then I know they got more funding to actually produce it. And then so we were all on deck. Uh, many of us who had done the original workshop were, were ready to do the production. And then, yeah, like so many shows during this pandemic time, it's just it's taken a little longer to actually get it live. So, yeah, I've been involved since the workshop, workshop stage as an actor. And then I was also brought on for this production as an associate producer, just because I, yeah, I think for a variety of reasons, I know Faye and I are, we're friends and mm -hmm. we're also, um, Faye has been involved in supporting uh, my, my work, specifically this experimental musical that mm -hmm. I just produced. And I have some experience uh, now with sort of self-producing work and the the background workings of making theater happen. So yeah, so I've gotten to work with the production team and as an actor, it's been interesting. Yeah, that's very exciting. What exactly does an associate producer position entail in this production? Yeah, um, well, <laughs> producing is, uh, it's sort of just, I, I find it's, it's like an umbrella job. The producing team are really the people that, yeah, you often have your hands in many different departments. So you're kind of communicating between all the different departments that theater involves. So, you know, stage management, sound, the acting team, um, uh, and you're, you're figuring out the logistics. You're, you're helping to make sure that everything is actually going to happen. It's a, a whole lot of sending emails to different people around, you know, getting the printing done for marketing or picking up this chair that you need. Um, that's the sort of, you know, in a way like lower level and the, the higher level is as a production team, you're creating, you know, the container for the show that the creative work is going to sit in. And then that container is, yeah, it's the sort of engine. It's actually what's making it, making it happen and also interacting with the public, um, so yeah, as an associate producer, um, I'm supporting the lead producers, which are Faye, Mass, Sebastian Archibald, and Paige um, Loader. Uh, and yeah, I do I do a whole whole variety of things. Um, everything from sort of like, what did I just do? I just created our program. Um, I've done a bunch of supporting with like 
um, contracting, um, hosting production meetings. Um, yeah, a, a bunch of just sort of coordinating with the production team and supporting them around what they need and, and helping to sort of like, I think as an associate producer, a lot of my role has been like keeping the communication flowing in a healthy way, which is is good. I, I do like doing that. So it's a tough job. I feel like trying to reach people, especially in Vancouver, is so difficult. <laughs> um, yeah, it really can be. That's very true. So for you being involved in this, both as an actor and an associate producer was it difficult to kind of find the balance was it a lot of work or do you think it was you know fine you did it (laughs) (laughs) well you're getting me on a good day um because we just sort of like passed the hump of dress rehearsal so the last week has been a lot um uh yeah it's definitely always a balance um because they are you know wearing different hats and as an actor, your whole job is to be extremely present. Like that's a lot of what, you know, that's the call of performance is just to be, uh, it's to be really present where you are and really connected to what's going on in the moment. And as a producer, your role is to be connected to everything that's happening in the background. So they're sort of um, like oppositional roles. I think that the key is your team. So uh, this team has been, they've been great. I think when you have healthy communication and you're able to actually name those moments where you're getting overwhelmed and go, hey, I've got too much on my plate today. Can somebody take this and this? Or uh, like, I need some help with figuring this out. Um, I know for me, when I'm able to be honest like that with the team, um, it makes those challenges sometimes a little bit overwhelming, but it, it makes them feel much more doable and fun. And, and you feel like you can get in there and strategize. And uh, I think what I realized with this project is um, I've been self-producing my work for, I guess, about seven years, seven to eight years. And so I'm quite used to doing the like dance of like wearing producer hat, taking it off, putting on my writer hat, taking it off, putting on my actor hat, my musician hat. I wear a lot of hats. And there's a part of me that uh, there, there are sometimes like, it's important to have boundaries. Like I do need, when I'm in acting mode, I need to not be answering emails, but I also kind of, I, I think that I thrive on the kind of bridging between different roles and being able to, yeah, being able to have a multifaceted experience of, of a piece. So, and so on the description for the cafe, it says that there are seven unique pairings. So you each get a partner and your partner is Paloma. So did you know Paloma beforehand or did you meet on this project? Yeah, we met on this project, which is is fun. Um, I feel like in the Vancouver theater scene, it's quite small. So you do get to know um, people. Yeah, there's, there's a, you're often running into people that you know. With this project, it's a real unique kind of cast. That's quite a unique cast with a, a variety of backgrounds. And so there's been a lot of people that I've actually met for the first time, which is exciting. And Paloma, yes. So I didn't know Paloma. Oh, wow. That is very exciting. And well, at least from both what I read and what you told about, it feels like the show will be very emotionally intimate. And I was wondering, since you met Paloma on this project, what was the experience like for, you know, to meet someone and then be working on a project like this with them? Do you think it would have been easier if you'd known them beforehand? Hmm. That's an interesting question. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of definitely that sort of dynamic of like going intimate fast is part of what we train to do and what we sign up to do when we're performers and professional performers. Um, and there's, I often call actors like emotional athletes uh, because you're expected to go deep and get into these intense places rather quickly and you, and you work on your, um, you know, your, your vessel, which is your body and your emotional intelligence to be able to do that. But also it, it makes such a difference, uh, you know, the, the quality of care that you get from a director and from a production team really also can facilitate that closeness or that intimacy for a group. And I think, yeah, I just really, um, our director is Faye. So the scenes are actually split. They're, it's co-directed. So Chelsea Haberlin is directing three scenes. Faye is directing four. And they've kind of had their directorial take on each scene. And then they're co-directing the whole experience. So they've been figuring out how does this all flow together? And yeah, I have, you know, I just uh, could, could sing Faye's praises as a director for days. I think that Faye is a really... Faye has a really amazing balance of being quite an intellectual director in terms of like they really love script analysis and text analysis and they like to go deep with the writing and the, you know, the story and the characters and the intention. Um, but Faye is also very versed in, um, yeah, just very versed in, in consent and checking in with how you're doing and really genuinely cares about how you're feeling and how your your boundaries as an actor, which is not, you don't always get that. Unfortunately, I think it's now thankfully more and more common and becoming more culturally expected that directors and people in artistic leadership actually have skills to lead in an emotionally intelligent way, but that has not always been the experience and it's still not always so. So yeah, I think that that all kind of comes together to help facilitate that that closeness and Paloma and I just you know you never know I think just like with anyone sometimes you have natural chemistry with someone and sometimes you don't and that's an interesting thing as an actor like uh, when you're playing an intimate scene but you don't actually have natural chemistry um, or you don't you're not feeling that flow as like friends um, but Paloma and I luckily just very quickly were just like oh this is great this is fun we had quite a yeah, just quite an organic vibe. And we're playing lovers as well. Um, oh, wow. So yeah. yeah, we're playing lovers and we're negotiating our relationship and we have a kiss and like there's, it's, it is quite like a, an intimate scene. And I feel really, yeah, I feel really good, really held by the production and also really good, uh, good, good communication openness with Paloma. So it's actually been, been, been really um, delightful. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. And you, so when you mentioned you know, the natural chemistry that you have with someone, with your acting partners. Um, have you ever had an experience where you just had, you know, zero chemistry with your scene partner and you just, you were just kind of trying to force it. It wasn't happening. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I I've been lucky. I think that in a lot of the, the things that I've been cast in, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm very much like an actor creator uh, and multidisciplinary artist. So the way that I've kind of progressed in my career has been to make a lot of my own work and lead a lot of my own teams. And so I actually get a lot of control around who I work with. And then through that, I've cultivated a network of people that know, know me and know aspects of my personality and my values and my style. So I've noticed anyways recently that the projects I'm getting called into, they're already quite aligned and that, so that's really great. 
but I have definitely had, I'm thinking particularly of a scene, scene study class that I was doing, uh, where I had a scene partner who was a lovely man, but we just didn't like our acting chemistry was just kind of wooden on stage. And, and it took us weeks, weeks and weeks to like, I remember we were doing this performance for a bunch of you know industry people at this acting class did this where they invited a bunch of like film agents because it was a film acting class and our acting teacher just kept being like guys you need to find it like I don't know what you're gonna do but you need to find it and it was like right up until the performance and then and yeah and for me something that I think acting is an amazing thing in that like it calls on you to sort of like find connection and find the love for people that you wouldn't always normally in a similar way to out in the world where like, of course, there's the people we get along with, but what about the people that are challenging for us? Or what about strangers who we don't even know? And so I remember in that scene, it just took me a while. And finally, like when I found the love for um, the character that he was playing, when I locked it, then we just flew. Like the scene actually ended up going really well. So you don't actually necessarily need that chemistry to do a good job, but it's like you need to find your way into an understanding of that person's energy or the character. And once you do, then it, you can still do amazing things on stage. Yeah, that sounds, well, you put it really beautifully, but also I feel like since this happened in a class, <laughs> must have been a great way to prepare you for <laughs> professional work when <laughs> this would be the case. <laughs> Yep. Yep. That, it was helpful. Yes. Nice. So the show is described as blurring the lines between art and reality. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering when preparing for this, um, were you as the actors consulted in terms of what to put into scenario the scenario you're bringing to life? Do you have any elements from your personal life in the scenarios Or is it just kind of like any other play where you get a script and you act it out? <laughs> it is It is actually quite traditional in the theater sense of that. Like it was not a, in sort of what you're referring to, I think is um, something that we would often call devised work, which is where you bring a group of actors together and you pull on their, act, their personal experiences, their lives, their creative energy. And that creates the scripts or the whatever the template and then that's what is shared with the audience and uh both I think it's a zoo and I know Faye Nass especially has a lot of experience with that type of work but this is a more traditional creation process actually so it's like pl- they're playwrights and they went away and wrote scripts based on their inner worlds and as actors we're bringing them to life without necessarily uh, a personal you know connection to the stories however I would say that where you try to bring in that naturalism or that real life connection is in the casting. And so the casting is really good for this show. Like they were very specific about what they, what you would call naturalistic casting. So casting people that actually have some kind of real life experience, maybe with this character's energy or, or identity. And yeah, that's, I, I think that that's, what's allowing for that um, feeling of that blurring of art and life is It's who they've brought in to, to play these roles. And a lot of it does actually feel very, very real. Yeah. Also, thank you for defining what I was trying to say. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the way you described it was, was great, yeah. too. 
Just a a theater term we use sometimes. Yeah, it's good to know. (laughs) Have you ever been part of a project where well, it was device work? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. I've made quite a lot of my own or some of my own devised work. I like working in that way. I like kind of a hybrid form where I devise and improvise a bit to like bring out ideas and then I'll go to write and kind of go back and forth for my own work. Um, But yeah, I was in a collective for about two years Um, that a company called Urban Inc. uh, was the sort of host of this collective. It was an interdisciplinary artist collective, very like interracial, intercultural group of people. Uh, And we were all just like brought together for two years to learn and jam and work together. And then eventually we devised a whole performance that was um, showcased at the Revolver Festival. That was quite a few years back now, maybe four or five years ago, but that was a pretty deep deep devising process. And that's what you often get with devised work is you'll get people that work together for like two, three years to create something because it takes a while for like a group to actually build real relationships and gel and start to feel really truly trusting of each other. Um, Yeah, yeah. definitely. Sounds like a investment. Um, You mentioned a festival, which segues me into my next question perfectly so you've been both part of different festivals like the Vancouver Fringe Revolver Festival Shift Festival but you also worked in collaboration with companies like The Only Animal and Frank Theater yeah Um, in your experience have you found any big differences between producing something for a festival versus with a company Mm, yes 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 and no (laughs) (laughs) I think that the, well, yes. Okay. So with a festival, the festival is kind of nice. Um, it's, it's a really, it's, it's a nice model because the festival, it kind of, in some ways it kind of like cushions you as an artist because they are taking care of the, what I was saying, like the container, right. And they're creating this festival container that has you know, is bringing together a bunch of artists and audience. Um, and so the producing is pretty done for you in a festival. Um, and you're really coming in and like inserting your art piece into something that is already curated. Um, and of course, you're going to try to promote your show and different festivals like, you know, they range right in terms of how much you need to self-promote, like the kind of pinnacle fringe festival example is edinburgh fringe where artists have to like hustle to get people to come to their shows that's a very like bare bones festival uh, a festival like push festival uh is you know highly curated comes with a big established audience based they invite a lot of people in so you're brought into a landscape that already exists whereas producing with a company um, like what we just did I just did this my sort of big artistic baby is this show called more I gear a long time um, dead or deed Uh, and so I co-produced that with the touchstone theater and the frank also uh, was a production partner as well or a support producer and it depends. You can so it depends on your relationship with the company. So you can negotiate a relationship with a company where they produce your show kind of for you, and then that's a similar vibe where they're going to bring in their staff and their resources and their audience base, um, and then you're sort of inserting your work into their company culture. What I what we did with Morag was we chose to actually partner co-produce. Um, because we wanted to keep a lot of creative leadership. We wanted to run our team the way we wanted to run it. We wanted to make our work the way we wanted to make it. 
And so the companies actually just came in to kind of like give us resources and some guidance, but we took leadership and did a lot of that front work of getting audiences and, um, you know, connecting with a bunch of different people and running our team and all of the internal stuff. So it's kind of more work um, to do that, but you also, yeah, you also gain a lot of skills and, and you truly, um, yeah, you're truly kind of like creating your own culture when you do that, um, both on the stage and behind the scenes. So there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Yeah. And generally in like indie producing, so smaller scale producing, which festivals are a part of in Vancouver, a lot of the time you get these wild combos of collaborations where like a festival will come in and give you some development support and then a a venue will come in and give you like a space and then a company will come in and like give you a bit of money and then you get a grant and then you get a friend. Like it's often sort of like, it's a very, you need community to, to make theater. Um, and that's, pe people are always leaning in and sharing resources and creating these kind of different shapes of partnerships just to make stuff happen. Yeah, that must be where all the networking comes in handy. <laughs> yes. So you mentioned Morag, your mm -hmm. own um, experimental musical, which I wanted to talk about. So you're the co-creator, producer, and also lead performer of Morag, Your Longtime Deed, which mm -hmm. works to queer traditional Scottish ballads through loop-based soundscaping and storytelling. So I have a couple of questions. First of all, what exactly does a loop-based soundscaping entail in this context? Great question. It's not necessarily clear until you've seen it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so what we do in Morag is we work with uh, loop pedals. So loop machines, which are used a lot in the music world, where you, you can record and loop yourself live so that you can create layers of music that then back you up as a performer without having a band. And there's a loop artist do lots of amazing things um, in, the, in the music world. And so I started playing around with the loop pedal uh, many years ago. And yeah, I just started to get curious around of, of like, how can we use this in theater? Like I see it used in music a lot, but how could we use it as a theatrical tool? And so I started playing around with like, okay, if, if instead of just like looping, you know, my ukulele, like different patterns, what if I loop like a conversation? So what if I loop one half of a conversation and then in the other half you get the response or what if I loop you know a character's dialogue and then I loop like emotional reactions and then I loop some music behind and then it creates this whole sort of like score of uh, something like that so that was my own personal experimentation process and then we took some of that experimentation into Morag and yeah so we do just that in Morag we have two loop pedals um, that are that are on stage uh, as well as many instruments and we loop conversations between characters so you'll get you know what you get these kind of disconnected conversations that you don't totally understand until the loop starts to run together we loop in emotional reactions and then we also do loop soundscaping which is where we'll create different layers of atmospheric sound live to create like scenescapes. So instead of having a set where we're like, here comes the forest, we make a forest out of sound. So we'll, you know, we have a whole forest scene where we use all kinds of, we use some different, you know, actual objects, but we'll also use 
our breath and different qualities of our voices. And we'll, we'll move around the space and make bird calls. And then that will all get put into the loop. And then when it's looped back, uh, it becomes this very full sounding, um, yeah, sort of um, feeling of being transported. And what we do in Morag is we sort of try to do it where it's, you know, uh, you can see it. So we're not trying to hide that we're doing it. So as an audience, you feel a part of like, okay, we're building as if we're kids building a world together, imagining, imagining. But then at a certain point, it gets full and then you're just in it and you're in a new scene and you're in a forest and something is happening and it's all integrated. And so we, we use it in that way. Um, we often say that in Morag, we use it as a kind of memory tool to explore like, conversations that you remember and things that have happened or things that are going on in your mind that you don't hear. And we also use it as a, um, as a scenic tool or a soundscaping tool. That sounds so fun. (laughs) Yeah, it is really fun. Yeah. It's playful. It's really playful. Yeah, definitely. And so you're Scottish, right? I am. Yeah. Super Scottish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So did you grow up you know, hearing these traditional Scottish ballads. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I grew up, um, I did grow up hearing Scottish ballads. So mm. I, my, I'm Scottish on both sides of my family. My mom's family is from the central part of Scotland and my dad's family is from the Northeast. Um, and all of my grandparents immigrated to um, what is now known as Canada um, when they were in their like sort of early twenties. So in the, in the late fifties. And yeah, so I grew up with particularly my mom's mom, uh, my Nana, who's called her, her name is Rita Love. uh, And she sings these same two Scottish ballads at like every single family gathering that we ever have. Um, Our whole family knows all the words and she's great. She's a great performer and storyteller. And she told, told me many stories about growing up in Scotland and about her family and one of the um, things that that they used to do and was quite common in Scotland until sort of more like TV has taken over a bit, but it still happens in certain traditions. But before, you know, the sort of more modern era in my grandparents, great grandparents era, when they would get together, it was common in, in Scotland and in Glasgow anyways, that everybody at the party or everybody at a family gathering would have a song or a poem or a story to share. And you would be called on at different points in the night to share your your thing, your party piece, my Nana calls it. And it, it was just part of like keeping the flow going of the night and the energy. Um, and so, so yeah, I already had a kind of connection to ballads, but I didn't know that much about the tradition. And Morag is actually based on uh, my like search, yearning, longing to connect with my other grandmother, who's my dad's mom, who passed away when my my dad was a teenager and who I knew very little about uh, growing up. And I, but the one, like one little piece of information that I learned about her uh, as I was starting to learn about her story was that she played the piano and she loved old Scottish ballads. And so I was just like, oh, what is this? Like both my grandmothers kind of into this. And so what is my relationship with ballad singing? And then I went on this whole journey, lived in Scotland and mentored with a, a quite an established musician and ballad singer over there to like learn a little more actually about elements of the tradition and singing and how to pronounce things. And, and yeah, so it's been a journey. It's an ongoing journey. I still feel like I don't know that much about ballads, but I'm, I'm getting a little more connected with some of them yeah you're figuring it out yes <laughs> you grew up here yes I did yeah I grew up in not in um not here on 
uh, unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver, but I grew up in, in I was born in Toronto, mm-hmm. was raised in Calgary, and then I've lived here since I was a teenager. So oh, okay. grew up on Turtle Island. <laughs> nice. And I didn't go back to Scotland until uh, I was about 23. That was my mm-hmm. first time ever visiting there. Yeah. Oh, wow. So have you performed in Scotland? I have performed a little bit um, mm-hmm. because the, the development of Morag has been in collaboration with some Scottish artists. So the mentor that I mentioned, his name's Alistair Roberts. Um, he's a well-known um, yeah, Scottish kind of ballad singer, folk musician. Uh, and then my good friend, Rory Comerford, who helped develop a lot of the music um, in Morag, uh, is also a, a musician based in, in um, Glasgow in Scotland uh, and a composer and does all kinds of things. So yeah, I've been to Scotland, I think two or three times to do development on the piece uh, and have worked uh, like at the National Theatre of Scotland. We we did a work in progress showing there. We did a work in progress showing at the um, Scottish Storytelling Festival in Edinburgh. So have performed the work like a little bit as it's growing, but the Scotland hasn't seen the full piece yet because we just premiered it a few months ago. Um, so there are plans in the works around the possibility of, of touring out in Scotland and Ireland because um, it will just be so interesting yeah. to see how the show is received there in particular. Yeah, that'd be so exciting because I was going to ask, have you noticed any differences between a Canadian audience and a Scottish audience? You know, a little bit, even just in doing work in progress. It's it's like, so the show is actually very much from, it's from the perspective of the main character, Sam, who is, you know, based on my autobiographical journey, but also has her own fictional sort of world and narrative. But Sam is, you know, a white settler in living in, in Canada and Vancouver and, and is, and is negotiating that relationship with, you know, having an ancestral homeland, like so many people that she doesn't really know that much about, you know, she has some connection to it, but it's very much that sort of like diaspora energy. And um, that's, that's from where she's learning the ballads. So she's not learning them in a place where she's you know, has been steeped in the tradition. She's literally like reading this old letter and these old books and trying to figure out the tunes and it's quite awkward. And it's, it's bringing, I think it's bringing up that journey of like, what does it mean to try to connect to your ancestral traditions when there's been migration, when there's been disconnection. And then especially as, as a settler and a white settler on unceded indigenous lands, what's the complexity there of, of that reconnection. Uh, and then the queering and uh, as a queer person encountering these songs and these ballads that are at sometimes beautiful and it's sometimes disturbing. So sometimes overtly homophobic, overtly transphobic, misogynistic. And then what do you what do you do with those songs and how is that connected to your identity and your legacy? Um, so I think that the, the main difference in it performing it here is that people aren't familiar with like that familiar with like the ballad singing tradition or Kaylee dancing, for instance, we do some Kaylee dancing in our show as well, which is a Scottish community kind of dance form. I think for people here in some ways, we get a little bit of (laughs) leeway because it's a bit more romanticized. Like people are like, Oh, like, you know, these old songs and Scottish, you know, traditions and ballads and Kaylee. Whereas over there, there's so many Scottish people that are like, I hate ballads. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> they're just, you know, they're over it. There's either that or there's people that are really into traditional music, have been steeped in the lineages for a long time. And so there's a whole bunch of protocol around what you do with those songs and how they're sung. And people are nerdy about like exactly how you do it. And those people are going to be like annoyed at our show because we're experimenting like crazy. We're changing the lyrics. We're changing the characters. Like, and so... But but I also think there's a real reckoning happening in Scotland around their identity as a country within the UK, within Europe, um, and also their identity as a colonial power and like reckoning with the reality that they have major colonial history and baggage in other parts of the world. And so what does that mean? And I think this piece is like speaking back to a little bit of, you know, of like what, you know, what are these traditions and how are they still relevant? And I think the piece is trying to not romanticize the traditions, um, but I think that, yeah, you, you'll have a, a combination. I feel like we'd, we'd get a little more, I, I anticipate there being more strong reactions to the piece in Scotland, either really interested or like, what are they doing with our music? This is not right. Yeah, <laughs> no in between, they either love it or hate it. <laughs> Hopefully there's some in between. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there will be. So you mentioned that Morag premiered um, a couple months ago, I believe in June this year um, here in Vancouver. Uh, Are there any plans of, you know, reviving it, bring it, uh, performing it again in the near future? Yeah, um, there are plans in the works. We don't have like any dates or anything right now, um, as it is with producing your own work. Uh, what I've often say is like, you get to a stage, like we got to like, we premiered it, we did it, professional premiere. Uh, it actually went really well, which was wonderful. And then now it's sort of like, okay, what do we do now? Um, <laughs> but but yeah, we do have um, like, actually Faye and the Frank have leaned in um, as being, uh, yeah, that we, I've been having conversations with Faye about touring the show, uh, and it's looking like the Frank, um, will likely lean in as a co-producing partner for touring. Um, and then I'm also in conversation with this touring theater touring agent called Danny Fecco, who does a lot of, um, represent, representing of theater shows. Um, and, and she's uh, signed on to mentor me around how to actually get this show to the next level of touring. So no dates yet, but lots of good conversations and some, some hope like, uh, so it'll probably be, we probably won't remount the show for at least another, at least another year, if not year and a half. And then it may have a, a couple of years of running of kind of dates and bookings. Um, but we've got to get some more, honestly, it's, it's a funding it's a funding game. So you get funded for one stage and then you need to get funded for the next stage and getting funding takes time. So that's, that's where we're at, but people keep asking me people who saw it and, and, and I'm, yeah, I, I, I know that the work has more of a, a story in terms of connecting with people. Um, that was one of the most amazing things. Obviously you make something more. It was a long making process. It took about six years to make the show. Um, just because we've gone with Scottish collaborators and, you know, we could, we can only get together in certain pockets of time. And so it's, yeah, when you've invested that much time and energy into making something and it comes together and then the real gift and satisfaction of actually seeing it through, you know, seeing it in an audience's eyes and hearts and feeling them take it in and resonate with it and hearing the kinds of thoughts they're having in conversations that 
even though that's like, you know, that's going to happen as an artist, like it always blows me away. And it blew me away with Morag, the kind of way that people took it in. So I do, I feel a kind of, I feel a curiosity and also like a bit of a responsibility to share it with more people. Mm. And it also, it just sounds like a great experience overall to experience Morag, both because it's, well, it's experimental, right? With the loop pedals, it just sounds like it would be very interesting to see that unfold right before your eyes. And also, well, querying traditional Scottish ballads just sounds like a great, I don't know, you mentioned, you know, there are some, when it comes to traditions, <laughs> they can be mm-hmm. really homophobic, really mis- misogynistic. And querying those and, you know, getting them to a point where they're not those anymore I guess um even though they're still the ballads that sounds like um I don't know it sounds like a great idea how did you well you mentioned that you know you grew up with the ballads you heard them and uh it's very common also for Scottish people but uh you as the creator of this uh project how did the kind of the idea come to you (laughs) yeah it well you know some ideas arrive very clearly and others take time you know it's like pieces over time Morag was in part partly pieces but the the seed of it was when I it's very personal like very personal the start of Morag the seed of it is like I went to Scotland and lived there in my mid twenties, before I was even identifying as an artist. Um, That wasn't the path that I was on in my early twenties. I was more on the path of uh, sort of community work and social work. Um, uh, And, and yeah, and I went to Scotland because I just, I really wanted to connect with my uh, grandmother, Marion Ross, who she, uh, I feel like it's, I'm quite open about it now on media, but she died by suicide. Um, when my dad was a teenager and the trauma of that really, you know, as, um, as hard deaths often do, death is often hard, but suicide has traditionally a lot of taboo around it and um, forced silence. And so that's what happened with my grandmother's death. It really got like, her story really got like put under lock and key after she died. And um, I carry her middle name and I've kind of always grown up with this fascination around who she was, um, even though no one was talking about her at all. But I say in the show that like when you're a sensitive kid, you really notice when people don't talk about things and you're like, oh, why don't they talk about that? What does that mean? So anyways, it, it, it very much came from. Um, yeah, a curiosity that I had about her story and that side of my family that I knew nothing about. Um, and I started to, um, when I went to Scotland to pursue this longing to connect with my grandmother um, and that side of my family, I started to hear ballads and, and, and just hear them sung in ways that I'd never heard them. And, and I was really affected. Like, I think that when I went to Scotland, I was ready to not be affected. Like, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like Scottishy stuff. You know, I know I'm Scottish, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to love it. But like, it turns out I'm very Scottishy in my heart in certain ways. <laughs> the ballads just like, they just pierced me. Like, especially the mentor that I worked with, Alistair Roberts. The first time I saw him sing, sing I was like, transfixed like I felt like he was channeling 
so many generations through his body. And the song, like ball, old, old ballads, because it's an, they're an oral tradition that's passed down over generations and generations. Some of them are thousands of years old. And they have these like weird images and, you know, they, they portray a connection to the land that I think is also something that growing up as a, a, a white settler here and learning from and witnessing indigenous peers and collaborators, you know, model what it actually means to have a connection to a place and a cultural connection. That was something that I was like, oh, what is my version of that? Like without taking it from other people, people's culture, what is my version of that connection? And so ballads have also helped me to go there and to establish a connection with like homeland and ancestry through music. And yeah, so it was at the end of my time in Scotland that I just I had this like deep feeling in my heart, even though I wasn't a theater artist. Um, I was like, I think I'm like kind of want to make some kind of like show or theater thing that's like about this reconnection process with my grandmother, with, uh, you know, this kind of ballad tradition and an ancestral longing. And then I'm a queer person. So that's <laughs> that's just like in it. You know, I didn't really have to reach for that. When I was learning the songs way back in Scotland, I started to kind of be like, oh, like, what about what if instead of, you know, this song where this this they're celebrating this woman, like essentially, you know, like getting raped, uh, like what if instead like she runs off with the innkeeper who is like a badass, like business owner woman and they have a life like what if the song was about that instead, because and I just, I, my imagination just naturally started being like, how could this be more, how could I connect with this more? Cause I wanted to yeah. connect with it. So I'm like, I literally have to make up things that, you know, aren't there, but I do really believe that about storytelling. So much of it is it's actually there. It's just, what do you choose to focus on? What do you choose to imagine could be possible? And so I started doing that naturally with the ballads and then that, that ethic of remixing and remaking and reimagining just has been the fuel of the show. And it's been really, yeah, it's been really fun. And I think that it's also a, a value around how to work with ancestral lineage and traditions. Cause there's a lot of in our current era as it should be with reconciliation um, and the, you know, f finally more and more non-indigenous specifically white settler folks opening their eyes and waking up to, you know, the legacy of colonial history that our ancestors have been implicated in that we are still implicated in on these lands um, and, and all kinds of uh, the, the legacy of, of racism all over the world ongoingly. And so there's a, there's a weight to that and like a heaviness that is important. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say to go away from that, like real holding of being in discomfort and grieving and all of that energy is so important. And I think what Morag is offering as well is that like a complement to that, or also there's the possibility to be playful too. And that that is also important to like, keep you going on the path of, of ancestral healing um, and, and, and reckoning with these, these legacies. Um, I think that the energy of joy is, is a, a companion to the grief, you know, that you'll encounter. So. Yeah. It's, I know everything you're talking about is it's very interesting and I'm really glad I got to talk with you today and I really wish slash hope I can see Morag one day um <laughs> me too yeah but for now if well 
I personally will be coming to the cafe when I'm feeling much better and I'm not sick, but also um, if anyone listening wants to go see Claire and all the other actors in the cafe, it's running October 11th to 22nd, Monday to Thursday. It's at 7 p.m. and Friday and Saturday, 7 and 9 p.m. And it's at Kafka's at 577 Great Northern Way. And Claire, where can people find you? People can find me on Instagram. I'm Claire Love Wilson. You can find me on Facebook. I'm Claire Marion on Facebook. There's also mm-hmm. a Facebook page for Morag, you're a long time deed. Or mm-hmm. it's, deed is dead in, in like Scots. So it's D-E-I-D. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's also a Morag, you're a long time deed Instagram. Oh. So, and I have a website, clairelovewilson.com. So I'm out, if you Google my name, <laughs> Or you Google Morag, you're a longtime dude, you'll find a variety of pathways to engage. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Well, again, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope I hope I get to talk to you soon again. Yeah, I hope we get to meet IRL once you're better. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the interview. Thanks for your curiosity and for hosting a, a spacious conversation. It was lovely. Yeah. Well, thank you.